We know there's a fundamental link between people and organisational outcomes, but how do you measure that? The CIPD has been working with the professional bodies representing finance and management to encourage business leaders, managers and investors to find a consistent way of talking about the value of people in business. This is the ongoing Valuing Your Talent project and we went along to the launch of the latest work on it, a research report called Reporting Human Capital, Illustrating Your Company's True Value. Peter Cheese, Chief Executive of the CIPD, opened the event. People are our most important asset. I don't know, when I first heard that expression, it was probably 20 years ago. And yet, it somehow feels, in terms of how we understand that asset, how we nurture and develop that asset, how it contributes to organisational value, as well as organisational risk, has not always been sufficiently well understood. And in today's context, where we see so much change happening, new organisational forms, new ways of working, uh, so that context, I think, for many now, is putting a much stronger and sharper focus on, all right, so how do we really understand these key drivers of value in our business? Former business secretary Vince Cable was the keynote speaker. If you're trying to drive productivity, long-term growth, there are two things that really matter. One of them is innovation, applying science in a practical business context, and the other are people which is partly skills, but also getting the most out of your labour force through tapping into maximum diversity, dealing with issues around mental health. So human capital as a key element of productivity is one of the strands that we developed in my time in government and remains absolutely central. Anne Franker is CEO of the CMI, one of the partners in the Valuing Your Talent project, and she explained the motivation to get this right. Why measure this stuff? Why have a common framework? Because three professional bodies and UKCES said it was a good idea? No. It's because you're going to get better results and better performance. And that's why you do this as companies. That's why you do this and demand it as investors and encourage it as, as auditors. Let's pan out for a moment. Human capital reporting isn't a new idea. It's been around for a couple of decades, but it's trodden a pretty rocky path so far, with a number of attempts to roll it out all floundering. Ed Houghton is a research advisor at the CIPD. One of the theories for why they didn't really work was because of the, 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 the point in time. So back in the early 2000s, there was no real reason to change um, by the by the uh, business community. Everything was going fine, it was pre-crash. So why would you change something that wasn't, to them, broken? But it obviously broke in 2008 and therefore we've had a real kind of shift in perspectives for organizations towards more holistic views of, of business, which includes people. We see that regulation is now kind of picking up on this idea of human capital reporting, particularly around kind of qualitative measures of, of people, such as culture and well-being. He's right. The Financial Reporting Council published a best practice statement in 2014, nudging FTSE 100 companies into giving some details of human capital issues in their annual reports. So now feels like the right time to be talking about human capital reporting, um, but we still have a bit of a gap in capability in the, in the professions to be able to do that. But the regulatory sands are shifting a little, thanks in part to the growing desire amongst investors, customers and employees for transparency. This data is now out there for businesses and they can either control how it's communicated and, and filter it and tell their own story about it, or they can leave the data to, to come out of its own 
of its own volition and that may come through the employees through something like Glassdoor. They obviously have far less control over that but it still means that the data is out there. So so number one, organizations don't really have a have a say in it anymore because people demand of it. And number two, the idea of transparency since the crash has become so important for people, consumers, customers, employees, regulators, investors, they all look for these ideas of transparency and data. Joe Swinson is a former MP and Parliamentary Undersecretary of State for Employment Relations. She attended the launch event and commented on the challenges of putting human factors on the account books. I think, first of all, this is just harder to measure than money. Uh, Secondly, it can be perceived as a burden. And thirdly, uh, there is sometimes a resistance to publishing information that might not always be universally positive about the business. But ultimately, the truth needs to come out. And as Joe pointed out, it will. We're in, I think, a move, a culture a society that transparency is becoming more and more expected. And I don't think this is just of companies. I think actually this is just people's lives. If you think about the, the, the power of the internet and particularly the way the younger generation live their lives online and things are just available and known about. And so I think the assumption of privacy, and there are big you know, separate issues about privacy here, but I think the assumption, therefore, that things will be, will be kept within a company and that's not information that needs to be known by customers, by staff and so on, I think that, that, that ship has sailed. We're moving towards greater transparency and so, therefore, it's about harnessing that and then reporting in an authentic way that is open about the problems but what is being done about it and eschewing that sort of 1980s slick spin of just saying everything's all right even when it's actually covering a multitude of sins underneath you can't bury bad news that easily anymore because it you know social media it can be around the world and and, and the touch of a, a mouse or the, the touch of a screen on, on a smartphone this is a man who's thought long and hard about human capital reporting my name is martin mccrack and i'm a senior lecturer at Ulster university and teach in the area of, of human resource management Human capital is one of those things that's quite intangible. We're talking about employee well-being, we're talking about engagement issues, we're talking about motivation, we're talking about innovation. Those sorts of issues which, again, are very important for organisations, but they're very difficult to, to measure. Martin McCracken has been busy measuring how FTSE 100 companies have assessed their human capital values since that call back in 2014 for more external reporting. OK, well, essentially what we, we looked at were company reports for the FTSE 100, okay, and we looked at two different time periods, and the the key rationale here was to try and understand how have they changed from 2013 to 2015. So they poured over all 100 of them and did a content analysis of word terms which indicated human capital measurements. The upshot of it all was that there was a general increase of around 20% odd. So how significant is this? It is significant particularly in some areas, and I guess the, the most significant increases in terms of human resource development. And what we were finding there were issues such as talent management, um, internships, career development issues, things that are very important for employees whenever they're looking at potentially applying for organisations, also for investors, because they're looking at, well, where are organisations going? What, how, how are these organisations doing in terms of, of the human capital? And those are very important aspects. Then it allows... Um, people to get a good understanding of, of the scenario of what that organisation's really like to work in or to invest in. So who's benefiting from this increase in external reporting? It's good for organisations to be able to illustrate 
to a wide party of, of, of stakeholders where exactly they are on certain metrics and on, on certain issues. And I certainly if I was an investor, you know, I would like to know about the human rights issue, about how they deal with equality, how they deal with diversity issues. And again, that's, you know, we talk about the kind of business imperative of all that. You know, you, you think about your diverse stakeholders, your diverse client group, then you need to think about, well, how diverse are your senior management team? How diverse are your, your actual um, organisation employees as well? So those sorts of things are important to tell investors about because that ultimately will drive success for the organisation. With the cultural and regulatory winds both blowing in the same direction, it seems fair to assume there'll be a trickle-down effect from those FTSE 100 organisations reporting externally to smaller organisations reporting internally over time. Safe to say, the question of how to begin is top of many agendas right now. One organisation that's already started on the journey is Capgemini, a consulting, technology and outsourcing company with almost 180,000 employees in more than 40 countries. Maya Lukos is head of people analytics at Capgemini. We have a lot of data, internally and externally, and we weren't really doing much with it. They were also spending a great deal of time answering the business's questions about people. Questions come from all sorts of different areas and time that it was taking us as a HR function to answer those questions was way too long. So they decided to change that. They wanted to pull together information that, at that time, didn't live in the same place. L&D data, recruitment data, the, the bio data of our people, the traditional HR data finance data, exit interviews, etc. All of that together in one place so that we can have a, what's called a BI platform, so business intelligence, a dashboard that you can interrogate dynamically as a user. So what is the first step? Ed reckons we should start by turning the issue back to front. Find the problem first. So don't find the solution without knowing exactly what the problem is. Um, one of the traps that people fall into really is to think that they can apply a system or a method or they can invest in a technology that's going to fix every single problem they've got. It's never going to do that. So you have to really understand the issue first before you start to look for a solution. So that means communicating and sharing uh, expertise with the rest of the business. It means opening up dialogue with operations, with finance, with risk, with senior managers, with the board to have these conversations about what are the big issues, what are the big risks, and also what are the big opportunities that our organisation is facing. So finding the specific questions you want to answer is vital, but it's not easy. It's probably the most challenging part of where you start a project like that, um, because there's so many questions. And the more stakeholder you, stakeholders you talk to, the more questions you get, and you need to prioritise. So you need to challenge yourself constantly and with every single thing you actually put in in your solution, does it actually answer the question, the important question to the business? What is the most important question to the business? Chances are you can't answer them all. Some questions will be left on the cutting room floor, at least to begin with. We had to leave some questions behind, absolutely. There had been some resistance to the idea of human capital reporting, but Maya got the rest of the business on board by building a proof of concept in the very early days, which convinced them just how useful it was going to be. So rather than saying, I'm building this amazing thing and I can't tell you what it's going to look like, I don't know what it's going to look like, but you need to give me your data. Well, not many people might engage with it because they don't know what they're actually signing up to. But if you say, well, look what it could look like with your data already, 
then I think people are more likely to uh, to uh, take part in it. Imagine you want to compare some aspect of people management across the business, but the way the finance team describe it is different to how the communications team talk about it. That is an issue. If we take ethics, for example, you know, we can talk about ethical behaviour, ethical conduct. You know, do, do we need to actually pin it down? What are we actually talking about here? Is it behaviour or conduct or, or compliance or what are the issues there? Everyone talks about talent and definition of top talent, but then the perception in different parts of the business was slightly different of how they have defined their top talent. It's a nightmare. So I think most organisations see the HR kind of dictionary or lexicon and they all have a different perception. They all use different language. One example is um, is engagement. So you may have one view of what engagement is in the HR function. You may nail it down into something that's very specific about a particular behaviour that you're looking to develop or a particular attribute that you want to create in an individual. You go to another part of the organisation and it may be completely different. So they may actually start to talk about it in terms of values or culture or well-being. So we see that a lot of different terms get wrapped up into one. So we try to break it out basically into different sections that say this is a terminology, this is a type of language about engagement, this is a term that you can describe well-being with, um, and all of these different types of, uh, of descriptors for the HR function are now defined more clearly. So on the Valuing a Talent website, we have a framework that describes all of these different types of language. Meyer's team at Cap Gemini overcame this hurdle by letting go a little. There were certain definitions we couldn't agree on, for example, across the whole business, so we would say, OK, so you're going to have... This part of the business is going to have that type of uh, definition and this is what you're going to use and different part of the business is going to use something else um, because, it, because it kind of works for you. You know, we are a year and a half now in, uh, into using uh, the tool and we are moving to a common definition. And I think sometimes you can't win all the battle, battles at the beginning on your, on your definitions. You can't align everybody from day one, but that's okay. So how was the response from the rest of the business at Capgemini when it launched? It was an amazing response, definitely, because the people, I think, who have um, lived in a world of trying to get data from different sources uh, finally had something in one place that looked really professional and, um, and, and they were able to, take a, to tell a story, look back um, a couple of years um, and compare the different metrics. Um, it was definitely, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a fantastic response. Easy to use, fascinating insights to be found. But has it changed the way Capgemini arrives at its business strategy? Questions like that, that, that that you ask, extremely important for, for any analytics projects. And in terms of drawing the link between the actions we take on the back of the data, insights from the data, into that then impact our business, sometimes it is, I think, about articulating what it means to the business. Um, so, for example, for us, you know, there was a huge focus in, in our, on our sickness data on our absence and sickness data. And we have noticed that we've had a peak in a certain area of the business, which was unusual because we've not had that peak in that type in that time of year uh, before in two previous years, and we wanted to do something about it. So we've run a number of campaigns, health and well-being campaigns, and ultimately we have seen a drive down in sickness statistics, but that sounds pretty boring when you, when, you, when you talk about it, but I think the real value to the business is that we were able to give one day per employee back to the business. 
Everything that Maya talked about, it's for internal use only. But what about the demands of customers, clients, potential employees? It's important for investors. I think it's important from anyone who wants to engage with your organization today, whether it's a future hire or, or investor or a partner potentially a business partner, they would want to know something more about you as an organization, not just through a conversation that they have with you and a report you put in front of them, but actually through understanding a bit more about who you are as an organization. Of course, sharing inside information on your organization's people is a confronting notion. At Capgemini, they share diversity and inclusion metrics in their annual report, and they feel that the benefits of being transparent overcome the fact that not every human capital story will be a positive one. On our diversity uh, agenda, we had um, everyone wants to attract more females into, into technology. It's an incredibly uh, competitive uh, area. But by, coming, by publicizing your data on it, it doesn't tell a great story today, but it tells what we're doing about it. So where is this heading? There have been many false starts on human capital reporting, but have we now reached a milestone moment? Quite frankly, if you think about what's happened with knowledge management and what, I mean, the fact that we used to have to pay for every piece of research and today we just get it all for free, I think that's exactly what will happen with, with human capital data. Probably a few organisations will start it and will see benefit of it and hopefully more organisations will follow. Streamlined, up-to-the-minute data about the value an organisation's people are bringing or not bringing to a business must have an impact on the role of HR, bringing up once again that question of a seat at the top table. Historically, I think because we're not evidence-based in HR traditionally, we may not have the trust of many different professions in in the organisation. And Historically, it's been quite difficult to lobby for some of these ideas because we don't have the evidence behind it. Uh, I think now is the time because we have data that's available and we have the capability in individuals and systems to look at evidence. We can now make the case for some of these ideas in a more evidence-based way. Now is the time for the HR profession to mature into that place where they can have those very senior discussions with the senior leadership team, where they can challenge with evidence and push for the business to respect and understand the value of people. For more on human capital reporting and Martin's recent research, go to valuingyourtalent.com. Next time, something very different when we take a peek inside the relationship of a couple who decided to put shared parental leave into practice when their first child is born. Now, around a year after it came in, fewer than 1% of fathers are taking up shared leave and we'll be interviewing our couple together and separately to hear about their plans for him to stay home with the baby for six months while she heads back to work fascinating and we'll be following our new parents over the coming months to see how it all pans out so come back on august 2nd that's the first tuesday of next month and meet them don't miss it